I'm James Bays in Tallinn, Estonia. It's one year since Russia invaded Ukraine. It's one of the most significant conflicts on European soil since the Second World War. To mark the occasion, the President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, and the Secretary-General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, have come to the Estonian capital. They're also marking Estonia's 105th anniversary of its independence from Imperial Russia. The Republic of Estonia was then absorbed by the Soviet Union until its collapse in 1991. So what has Estonia learnt about Russia in the century since the founding of its republic? And what has Europe learnt after last year's invasion of Ukraine? The Estonian Prime Minister, Kaya Kalas, talks to Al Jazeera. Kaya Kalas, Prime Minister of Estonia, thank you for talking to Al Jazeera. Over the last year, we've seen the largest war on European soil since World War II. Now, no one is actually counting the casualty figures. The UN Human Rights Office estimates over 17,000 civilians killed, but we know the figures are a lot higher than that. In terms of Ukrainian soldiers, Russian soldiers, no one is announcing figures, but they're in intelligence estimates estimating more than 100,000 Russian soldiers killed and as many as 100,000 Ukrainians killed or injured. With those figures, how do you resist those who are calling for an immediate ceasefire now? What, what I've learned during this year is that uh, we are, in Europe, we are a small continent, but uh, it seems to me that we don't really know each other's history. Uh, so that, of course, everybody understands war is bad, peace is good, very simply put. But there's also a difference between peace and peace. I mean, uh, you had peace after the Second World War, where you built up your countries, your societies, well-being of people. We also had peace, but our people were deported, our, our culture pressed down, pressured down, uh, I mean, elite erased completely. So, so this is the difference. And that's why, you know, a peace when uh, the territories are occupied doesn't mean that the atrocities are, are stopping so, so that that will continue. And just to be clear to everyone who's watching around the world, your country until 1991 was not an independent nation. It was part of the Soviet Union. Tell it us was what, occupied. occupied. It was not part, it was occupied by the Soviet Union. Well, legally, legally at the time, it was seen by the United Nations as part of the Soviet Union, and the legality is something clearly yeah, we're yeah. going to come on to late, later yeah. in the interview. At what point, though, do you stop fighting and start negotiating? When, uh, when the time is right, then only Ukraine can say when the time is right uh, what, uh, what they can uh, you know, agree on. Because one thing is that if we have this aggression, uh, somebody decides to attack a sovereign country, we have agreed on international law that it is illegal to attack another country. And if somebody does, there has to be consequences. But if it is just that, okay, now you have conquered territories, let's draw a line here, then it, uh, it pays off. Aggression pays off. So uh, you still have more territories than you had before. So there has to be many tools that we use. One is accountability. The other one is, of course, the military uh, support to Ukraine so that they, they can defend their country and only Ukraine can say when they... they you say only negotiate. Ukraine can decide, but you know President Zelensky's position. He's made it quite clear. He wants to recapture 
every single inch of Ukrainian territory. Now, that might be right in terms of international law, but is it really feasible militarily? It's going to take years, is it not, for him to get Crimea back? But the question already uh, indicates that it's okay to attack another country and take uh, take away territories. I mean, last year in this Munich Security Conference, I, I quoted the foreign minister of of Soviet Union who said that you know uh, you know present threats and don't give one inch in negotiations because you will always be people in the West who will offer you something and eventually you will have more than you had before. So it pays off. But every aggressor and would-be aggressor in the world is taking notes that it pays off. And this is also very dangerous to the uh, overall global security. One of the problems, though, is that if you listen to the words of President Putin, and no one knows exactly what's going on inside the Kremlin or inside his head, but it appears this has become existential for him. He believes if he doesn't win this war, he's not going to survive his government's not going to survive. So aren't we really talking about getting everything President Zelensky wants, meaning regime change in Moscow? No, I, I wouldn't talk about regime change, but I wouldn't worry about Putin as well. I mean, uh, they control the media in Russia and they are able to show that it's great victory. Ukraine didn't invade Russia and, and they can sell this to their public. So I wouldn't worry about that. Let's talk about what's happened in the last year in terms of the EU and NATO. You are both an EU and NATO member. A lot of support. It's ramped up slowly. First, there was non-lethal assistance, then weapons, then heavy weapons, then artillery. And now we're talking about tanks. President Zelensky has said Europe's doing all the right things. It's just doing it far too slowly. Well, this is uh, um, on one side true that uh, every every time we hesitate or, or the time is somehow prolonged, then the price goes up. I mean, imagine that all the countries that are giving military aid right now would have given this in January uh, last year like we did. I think the outcome would have been different and also the signal to Putin would have been different. That so you we think are they, behind. They, there might not have been a war if that had happened? We last no, spoke, a, well, we did an interview a year ago. Yeah. If, if that had happened when you were here at the Munich Security Conference last year, perhaps there'd have been no war? Well, uh, I can't say that because, you know, it would have been, should have been, we don't know. But I'm, I'm just thinking that uh, uh, it is true that the price goes up with every hesitation, with every delay. So uh, if we would have given all, all that we have, I think that the military people uh, in Kremlin would have also uh, given a different signal. Now it has gone uh, very far. Uh, the war, but uh, we don't see inside Putin's head, of course. When you look at the measures that have been taken by NATO and the EU, at every stage there were some countries that were very enthusiastic, and the Baltic states were among them, and, and Poland, and there were others that were saying, no, wait, and they're always the same countries, aren't mm -hmm. they? They're Hungary, yeah, yeah, which seems to, seems to have some affection towards Russia that the rest of the EU doesn't have, and they're Germany. Mm -hmm. Don't you need to have a word with Chancellor Schultz? Well, first of all, I wouldn't use the word enthusiastic. We are talking about war, but uh, it is existential issue for us because, as I said, we have been occupied for 50 years. Uh, my country, as well as the other Baltic countries, Poland, has suffered a lot 
because of uh, Russia's invasion. So, so we know what we are talking about and we really feel that uh, putting all the support behind Ukraine so that they can defend themselves is an issue, existent existential issue, that it doesn't go any further. But um, we are all democratic countries, uh, so is Germany. In democratic countries, uh, leaders are dependent on the public opinion and, and you know, democracies take time, debates take time. So I'm very happy that we are actually very united in NATO and in European Union. And it is a negative surprise to Putin because he doesn't believe in multilateralism. You say it's an existential issue for your country. How worried are you? that if Putin succeeds in Ukraine, there'll be an invasion of your country. And in terms of NATO support, I believe the number is about 1,300 troops from other NATO countries led by the UK that are now in Estonia. Is NATO doing enough? Um, if we wouldn't be in NATO, uh, I think we would uh, be living through some very dark times right now, but we are. And that's why we are not living uh, so dark times as Ukraine is. And we are not threatened the way because uh, we have our big friends behind us and not even behind us, but with us in Estonia. Uh, there are US troops, UK troops, uh, French troops uh, present. Uh, so, and everybody has assured us that, uh, you know, Article 5 in NATO um, is ironclad and everybody will be there for us. So it works as a deterrence also for, for Putin that he doesn't want a war with US. In terms of what Ukraine needs now, I'll come on to fighter jets in a moment. But the other problem seems to be rearmament of Ukraine. There seems to be a problem with ammunition. There seems to be a problem with artillery shells. In fact, it seems Ukraine is using more than are currently being manufactured. The NATO Secretary-General, Jens Stoltenberg, says it's a race of logistics. Our defence industry is under strain. What needs to be done now? I, I made a proposal when we had the European summit that uh, we should uh, use a similar approach like we did with vaccines, that European countries will provide funds and there's a, a you know, European peace facility who will procure the ammunition. That would send a clear signal to European defence industry to boost their uh, uh, production because uh, Russian uh, military industry is working in three shifts and so the European uh, industry uh, or uh, the global industry should do that as well, but they need the assurance that uh, countries will buy that ammunition. So I think we could do this much faster uh, so that the artillery shells will reach Ukraine. The latest thing that's on the Ukrainian wish list, you know, because uh, you were there in Brussels and uh, President Zelensky was also in London and Paris. He wants fighter jets now. Now, I know the simple answer from Estonia is you don't have fighter jets. You've got nothing to give, so not really our issue. But if you had fighter jets, would you give them? And what are you, when you're sitting around that table with NATO leaders, sitting around the North Atlantic Council table, what are you telling your fellow leaders? Well, of course, tanks and, and planes, these are like tangible, big things. That's why, you know, very, everybody is so fascinated by those. But I think right now, uh, Ukraine really needs the ammunition and artillery shells. Uh, this, is, uh, this is what we can do. So let's concentrate on what we can do. And of course, if we would have uh, planes, we would give them, but we don't have. So it's up to those countries to decide who have. 
At the moment, a lot of the fighting in eastern Ukraine is around a place called Bakhmut. Um, and there are some who say the fighting on the eastern front of Ukraine now somewhat re resembles the western front in World War I. Putin is using his troops as cannon fodder, particularly, it seems, those that the conscripts that have been um, that have joined up to join the Wagner, the Russian mercenary uh, group. Do you think the Ukrainians are right to focus so much on the defence of Bakhmut, which military experts, generals, say is really not that strategically important? Well, I'm not the military expert, so, so I, I would But you have some working for you. Yeah, the, this is true, but, uh, but I mean, I, I wouldn't comment on their military, military decisions, so what they, uh, what they are focusing on, they know it better. Let's talk about the EU and sanctions because that's something that, you, that, that the European Union is doing a great deal of. We're now coming up to the 10th package, I believe, of EU sanctions that are being proposed. What are the gaps in the current sanctions? And are the sanctions working? Um, first, the sanctions are working. Uh, uh, that's why Russia, uh, every time they have the possibility, are bringing up how to lift the sanctions, really, how to put the pressure to lifting the sanctions. And they hurt. Uh, so, um, uh, on our side, it is not only the sanctions, but it's also the circumvention of sanctions that uh, has to be, uh, you know, all the loopholes have to be closed because otherwise, you know, some will just gain from it. Um, we know that uh, what is hurting is the war in Ukraine and, and the sanctions are stemming from this, not uh, vice versa. So I know that Hungary is saying that Europe is at fault here, but uh, uh, nobody uh, uh, believes that really. You have taken a lot of Russian assets, when I say you, not just Estonia, but European countries. You're, I believe, now proposing that that money should be used to reconstruct Ukraine. Well, I feel that it's not right that the European taxpayers are paying for what Russia destroys. So, in legal terms, we have the frozen assets. Yes, it's true, we don't own them, we haven't confiscated them. So, in, 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 a, in a triangle uh, of claims, uh, Ukraine has a claim to Russia, Russia has a claim to Europe, because we have their assets. And, and so, you know, we could settle those claims by giving uh, the amount that uh, is, is similar to the value of those assets to Ukraine. And later on, when we have, you know, the war is ended and we talk about reparations, then we can make the settlement that we already gave to Ukraine uh, what, uh, what we have. One of the sanctions that was recently proposed by the European Commission concerned the nuclear power company in Russia um, and uh, stopping um, it making money and sanctioning it. That move appears to have been blocked by France and yet again by Hungary. Do you think that was the right decision? The, their argument is that there are countries in the EU that rely on Russian nuclear power, but there were lots of countries in, in the European Union that relied on oil, oil and gas yes. as well, including your own country. I've been listening to those nuclear debates and of course, uh, uh, you know, every time we have a debate on an issue that we don't do, uh, gives also idea to the Russian side that um, is this something that we can use. Um, so, so this needs to be kept in mind all the time. But, uh, but I'm not uh, really the one to argue with their argumentation uh, because we don't have nuclear power. You don't. 
You are now relying again, though, a great deal on shale gas, as I understand it. As, as a, uh, uh, that, that's certainly something you've reverted to. At a time when the world is caring so much mm. about climate, I'm told, I'm not an expert on this at all, that is, it is pretty much as dirty as coal is. It, That's a very backwards move, no, isn't it? Actually, we haven't. We have always used the oil shale and mm. we tried to get rid of it by uh, 2035. Uh, so, so we haven't opened any new plants or anything. And most of our energy comes from the renewable sources. Uh, and also we are connected to Finland and Sweden and, and the electricity market are all uh, connected. Uh, so uh, when the price goes, uh, price goes down, then the oil shale does not get to the market because of the CO2 uh, emissions. Uh, so uh, it is dependent on the electricity market and the price really. Your background before you became a politician was a lawyer, so I'd like to get your take on an important issue, which is the war crimes that have taken place in Ukraine. Human rights organisations, the UN and others, are convinced there have been massive war crimes that have taken place. Uh, first, the scale of crimes that we, we have seen, what is your response to that? Well, those crimes have to be prosecuted and we, uh, as Estonia, has also uh, provided help to ICC and Ukraine to uh, prosecute those crimes and gather evidence. But what we have to, uh, you know, separate is uh, war crimes that are committed by the soldiers. I mean, targeting civilians, hurting, uh, raping, torturing uh, people. These are war crimes that can be uh, uh, prosecuted by the ICC and Ukraine. But there is also also a crime of aggression, which is a leadership crime. It is something that requires a special tribunal because otherwise uh, there will be immunity for Putin and Lavrov and those who have decided to attack another country. And uh, the leadership crime is the crime that uh, without what uh, the war crimes wouldn't exist. But you were on a panel with the boss of the ICC, the International Criminal Court, the prosecutor, Kareem Khan, and he said, it's a no-brainer. We should use what we've got. What is wrong with his court? Why can his court not deal with the crime of aggression? Because uh, the crime of aggression is, is not their um, uh, jurisdiction. Uh, so, so Ukraine and Russia are not part of the Rome Statute. Um, you know, it's a legal, mm. a legal issue, but, uh, but uh, if there is a hybrid court uh, by ICC and Ukraine, then it means that the leaders are left out of it because they can't uh, prosecute uh, the leadership crimes. And I think that sends a very wrong signal to all the aggressors or would-be aggressors in the world. Now, the Netherlands has host, offered to host a court. You're involved in all the discussions that are going on. I think they're taking place at the UN, they're taking place in the EU, they're, I'm sure, involving the, the Biden administration as well. Where would you say things are going? What sort of court are we looking at right now? Are you winning the argument for this international special tribunal? Things are moving to that direction. Uh, so, so I think more and more uh, people and countries understand the ne necessity of this. And, and I've been reading about those tribunals. And what is really interesting is that actually, first, the idea uh, that the 
crimes of aggression have to be prosecuted came from a lawyer uh, of the Soviet Union. <laughs> uh, so, so because they said that you can't get away with this. And then there was a Nuremberg Tribunal. But uh, we have, uh, we see this war in Ukraine right now because there was a tribunal for Nuremberg and there was a tribunal for Tokyo for the Nazi crimes, but there was never a tribunal for Moscow. So if we don't prosecute this, it will just repeat itself all over. Let me ask you about NATO briefly and Sweden and Finland. They're still not members and there still seem to be objections, objections by Hungary again, but also objections by Turkey. Do you think Turkey is being obstructive? Mm. First of all, I was witnessing when uh, Orban was giving a promise to Finland that uh, it will uh, be done in February. So, so uh, we, we are watching very carefully. So Hungary uh, will uh, do that and ratify, I hope. But regarding Turkey, I know that uh, our Swedish and Finnish colleagues are working with those uh, um, requirements or questions that Turkey has and, and uh, we all see that it's very much related to the elections that are coming up in Turkey but uh, hopefully it will all be settled by uh, the, uh, the Vilnius summit uh, and we will be able to greet uh, new members. Of course you are also facing elections. Yes. Is, is, let me ask a basic question, is the war in Ukraine the number one issue? It is, it is. Uh, it is the number one issue, uh, security, uh, uh, because without security you don't have anything. You don't have freedom, you don't have economy, uh, you don't have the well-being of people. Uh, we have seen that uh, not so long ago actually, 30 years ago. There are some in Europe who've taken to calling you the new Iron Lady. And I've even used, seen that used by British newspapers. And of course, the original person who was dubbed the Iron Lady was the former British Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. That is clearly enhancing your reputation <laughs> all around the world. But does it at home make people think that perhaps you're a single issue politician, even if it is the biggest issue of all? Uh, well, uh... The security issue was not my issue before the war at all. So I'm, I'm uh, working on economy, on digital issues, on on, on cyber issues, all of all of those. Uh, they, uh, I have all sorts of nicknames, and they call me back home uh, the war princess, like uh, in a negative term. So I don't know what to do with those nicknames. But and you're uh, at a time when you're trying to focus on these international issues. Clearly, these international issues are having a bearing on the global economy, on the European yes, economy absolutely. and on Estonia's economy. This is not really a particularly good time to be running for re-election. No, no, true, uh, true. But, uh, you know, it is very difficult times and people understand that. Uh, and, and due to our history and the experience uh, from that, I think people also see that uh, we have been through tough times before. But let's see, elections are always very, very... Um, uh, you never know how, how the people really think and what is the outcome, so what influences their decision. But uh, we try to do our best. As you try and get re-elected as Estonia's Prime Minister, and you are the first female Prime Minister of Estonia, you're probably aware there's already speculation about what might be 
your next job? <laughs> because the Secretary-General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, uh, has extended his term and it finally runs out later this year. There are lots of names being mentioned, but one name is persistently mentioned, and that is your name. Would you like to be the next Secretary-General of NATO? And what are the qualities, do you think, that the candidate should have at this time, given the circumstances in Ukraine? Well, uh, first of all, I, I think it's highly unlikely that I will be offered such a, uh, such a job. And right now I'm really focusing on, on getting re-elected and, and being the Prime Minister of Estonia. In terms of the Baltic nations, though, I'm assuming it would be good for the Baltic nations, or at least the newer nations of Europe, to, no. get, a, to, get, to get a job like that at this time no this is this is true and i'm i'm now answering uh, more broadly yeah. uh, we have been members of nato and european union now for 18 years and and having some post for uh, like a really high post for also all those who have uh, you know, joined the European Union or NATO uh, 18 years ago, that would be a sign that we are equals at the table. And, you know, uh, also, uh, uh, you know, some say that, you know, NATO's secretary general can't come from our region because it will somehow, you know, make Putin, Putin angry, uh, but uh, but then we actually say that uh, Putin has a say who we elect uh, as as our leaders, and then we give give him more power than he should have. We have to make our own decisions, and I think all the countries around the table should have equal opportunity to also have the po uh, top posts. Thank you very much indeed, Kai Kalas, Prime Minister of Estonia. Thank you for talking to Al Jazeera. Thank you.